Platform engineering is difficult to get right, and in the age of DevOps and cloud computing, software developers increasingly serve as platform engineers while they're building their applications. This can be an engineering challenge because organizations often require their platforms to provide fine-grained control and compliance management. Corey O'Daniel is the CEO and co-founder of MassDriver, which he started in 2021 with the goal of helping engineering and operations team build internal developer platforms. Corey's company was in the 2022 Y Combinator class, and he has been hard at work developing his platform. He joins the show today to talk about how he thinks about platform engineering and the challenge of abstracting away infrastructure. This episode is hosted by Lee Acheson. Lee Acheson is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His best-selling book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business. Listen at mdb.fm. Follow Lee at softwarearchitectureinsights.com and see all his content at leeatchison.com. Corey, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time. Great. Thank you so much. You know, so I've been trying to think of a short phrase that describes what your company does. And what I've come up with so far, and I'd love your thoughts on it and have you, you know, completely change it to what you think is the right thing. But what I've come up with so far is you want to give your customers a simplified, automated, consistent infrastructure. How does that sound or, or what would you change in that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty close. What we want to do is give people the ability to create standardized compute environments with guardrails and enough flexibility so engineers can kind of self-serve quickly, right? The reality is in like platform engineering, there's two users and they both have to love the thing, right? The developers have to enjoy using the platform and the operations engineers have to be able to support and build that platform. But what you see like in mid-size organizations is like this is hard. Like DevOps has become very hard to do nowadays with like 100, 200 AWS services. And so it can get kind of inundating to do that work. And so our goal is really to be kind of the malleable layer between your operations and your software engineering team, allowing them both to focus on what they're good at and let the platform kind of take care of some of the more mundane things that people don't want to handle, like registering, tracking metrics and alarms, controlling costs, tagging stuff, naming conventions, lit operations engineers kind of focus on writing Terraform, writing Pulumi, writing open tofu, you know, packaging their compliant, secure infrastructure into a platform where their engineers can just kind of grab what they need and get right back to writing software. You mentioned the two groups, you know, the developers and the ops engineers, and you write about that, but there really is a third group too, isn't that there? And that's the management, you know, because they care about things like costs and compliance. Yeah. For sure. For sure. We definitely, I would say that today, that's probably the group of users that we underserve. And that's actually something that we're kind of actively working on. We've had some feedback from some operations teams that like that is what kind of their bosses are looking for, right? And some of their team is looking for. And what's interesting is like we have a lot of really interesting data about some of these compute environments and we can present it in ways that some other platforms can't. So we do have some cost and mean time to resolution functionality that's going to be coming out 
around reInvent in the new year. But that is absolutely key. Like there's a lot of people that need to understand what's running, how it's running, who's deploying what, where is it running, right? Like we got we got global customers, right? And so that's really the goal of the platform is like we want to give something visual that's low fidelity that anybody can understand, even some of your management team that may not have, you know, near-term operations experience. I guess you could argue a fourth group, which you could easily lump into one of the other three, though, is security, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, security is definitely a big one, right? And I think that's one of the things, to me, that's one of the kind of the big key differentiators between like, you know, a lot of people feel like DevOps is being rebranded as platform engineering. And I don't think that's the case. I've definitely got some hot opinions on DevOps. I am the DevOps is bullshit guy. I do have some opinions there. And I don't, I don't think that it's rebranding. I think it is grown up DevOps, right? It's it's scaling DevOps for some of these orgs. It's addressing some of the resource constraints that we have. We don't have enough people with operations experience. That's what's actually offensive to me about the idea of DevOps. It makes it sound like anybody can do ops, but ops job is hard and ops people are rare, right? And I think that we need to kind of pay some respect to those roles. And that's one of the things that really grinds my gears about like the term DevOps and kind of how like what it's become. It's just, but when it comes to platform engineering, I think it goes a little beyond that, right? It encompasses orchestration. It encompasses getting things from the cloud, right? It's not just the CI, CD, infinity loop anymore. Like I've got to get some databases. I've got to get queues. I need KMS keys. Like there's so much tangential stuff and then security and compliance on top of it that it's very hard to just kind of jam into this portmanteau that we're just adding to. We got DevOps, we got DevSecOps, we got ML ops now, right? Like how many more words are we going to jam in there? We're shifting a lot of the, you know, accountability left, but we're not we're not shifting the experience left. Right. Like we're just expecting all of these things. You know, that's actually a great point. And in fact I I would argue that the early cloud was one of the goals of the early cloud was to try and solve that, right? You know, one of the goals of the cloud was to make it easy to get an infrastructure up and running. And in fact, in the early cloud, it was a lot easier to do that than it is now. But the cloud has matured. The cloud has grown. The cloud has gotten very, very, very complex. And now you need a special level of qualification and certification just to understand what the cloud can do, let alone build an infrastructure. So it, it really isn't a relevant thing to allow developers on their own to do everything it takes to build an infrastructure. They just can't do it anymore. It's just too complex to be able to do. Yeah. And what's interesting though is like, they do know what they want though, right? Like they can look at AWS or Azure and they can say, oh, I need Aurora. Maybe I need a highly available Postgres like running in Aurora, right? But should they be inundated with what high availability means? Like, what disaster recovery means. Like there's a lot of operational know-how there and you can say, yes, build it, you run it, like go figure it out engineer. But now that person's not delivering business value. That's their job, right? That's the engineer's real job is to deliver business value. And as we pile this DevOps term on them and say, you've got to figure out more and more and more of the cloud, we're delivering features less, right? And like, that's the kind of trade-off that it feels icky to me, right? And like, that's why I really see the boon of platform engineering. If we can make it accessible to everybody that again, the real rub there is like, we don't have a ton of operations people on the planet, less than 10% of people in the most recent Stack Overflow poll said that they have cloud operations experience. That's scary. In a world where everybody's moving to the cloud, it turns out not a lot of people consider themselves experts in it. 
right? Less than 27% of orgs are even using IAC. That's from like the, the latest survey uh, on continuous delivery. Like these are a little freaky in a world where literally everything is software now. All of our businesses are slowly becoming software companies and we're all trying to move to the cloud. We're moving there quickly. We're seeing whoever on the team can do it. And, you know, we'll deal with security and compliance when there's a breach, right? We'll deal with security and compliance when an auditor's mad, right? Like, can we have that stuff upfront? Can we deliver software safely and securely? Like, that's what we really want to be able to help people to do. I agree with everything you've said there. And I think I a lot of it still comes back to, you know, the complexity, right? It isn't easier. It isn't less complex to build an infrastructure now than it used to be. It is actually more complex. There's more things you, you need to worry about it. Some of it is because, you know, IAC is a thing and that has value, but also adds complexity. Part of it is because security is more important now and, and you know, things like principle of least privilege is very hard to get right if you don't know what you're doing. And so focus on things like that add substantial complexity to what is, you know, a, a simple matter of I want a server, I want a database, connect them. Well, no, that's eight things that need to be connected in order for, for that to happen. Yeah. I'm going to share a little secret here, but like one of our kind of outbound strategies for finding customers is we actually look at what people are hiring for. So we do a lot of digging through people's job postings, like what cloud services, et cetera. And it's funny, like talking about principle of least privilege, there's this role that has started to crop up over the last couple of years, an IAM engineer. Like, like, yeah. that, like, like, jump out, like it used to be so easy. Like the cloud was a couple of VMs, maybe like an SQSQ, like back in like 2008 or whatever, like everything was super easy. Like DevOps was plausible, but like now we have an IAM engineer and like people can <laughs> shake their head and be like, oh, that's ridiculous. But like IAM can be hard, right? And is hard, period. I mean, to get it right, it's very hard. And it's like a lot of times, like we'll do something. Well, okay, we're tinkering around with it. We're trying to just get this work. I'm doing this DevOps thing. I've got 40 hours this week to ship a feature. I've played around this cloud service for 10 hours. I've got it configured and working right. I set everything to admin on the role. I gave as many permissions as possible. It's working. Features got to roll out sometime this week. I'll get to clamping down on that IAM later. Let's throw that in the backlog, right? And like, I feel like that is a very common approach to like how we go about just Managing put a star people. there and I'll start working, you know, it's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stars make IAM easy. Just use a, yeah, an asterisk. You know, they make, I am engineer, just throw an asterisk in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on their swag for reInvent right now. And I might, that might become a sticker. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> no, you have to send me a copy if you, if you do that. But in fact, the truth, right? I mean, it's, I'll worry about this later means I'll just, open it up to a lot broader number of people who can connect to, let's say my database, because it's easier to connect to it if I don't have to worry about all these restrictions. And I'll worry about putting the restrictions in place later and they never get around to doing it. Yeah. Many, many, many security vulnerabilities are created using that basic mindset is I'll get around to dealing with security later. Yeah. Hard to do it up front too, right? I mean, we talk to companies where they're like secure, like we don't, security isn't a revenue driver for us. And like, whew, I, like I've heard that phrase multiple times and like, I get it. I get it. Like security isn't going to make you money if you're a B2C company, right? Like it's not going to make you money if you're a healthcare company 
But like morally, it sure lose you a lot of money though. <laughs> yeah, certainly can. Well, I mean, luckily we can just get you know Experian credit protection, and we can buy cyber insurance. So you know the the insurance companies handle that for us, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a bleak outlook. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but your point being is that the platform infrastructure itself should be able to handle that for you, and that's kind of what you're trying to accomplish now. Your solution, you take an approach of using a diagram-based solution because it's easy to describe how do things connect and how to get things done. And and I watched some videos on your site and I I haven't had an in-person demo of your product yet, but I have seen the videos on site and I see how those connections work. And it's a really pretty easy to understand interface and easy to get going. It's it is designed for the engineer to make the job of the engineer easy. I can I can see that. But one of the problems with diagram-based interfaces is, you know, they tend to fall apart when you have a lot of detail, right? The more detail you add, the more complex the system becomes, the more attributes attached to each node, the more, the more, the more, the more, the harder it is to deal with a diagram. It becomes much easier just to type it into a YAM or JSON file than it is to click, 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 click to get everything just right in the diagram. And where is it I have to look for this attribute? And where do I have to do that attribute? How do you avoid that complexity with your diagramming approach? So we have like a marketplace of infrastructure components. So similar to like the Terraform registry or Pulumi registry, we're IAC agnostic. So today we support Terraform, OpenTofu, Helm, Halloumi is in beta and can be requested. Essentially, we have this marketplace and we publish a lot of the bundles that are in that marketplace now, but companies can publish their own private modules as well in any of those ISC tools. And so what's interesting about the way that we work is there's two other aspects of MassDriver that sit on top of the IAC that really make that flexibility possible. So we have effectively like a contract system between different Terraform modules, if you would. So if you look at if you look at MassDriver, you'll see a box and there's a line connecting it. That line is not just decoration for your eyes. That line actually drives a lot. So it does dynamic configuration. It'll inject credentials directly into your application's runtime from your database. It will handle helping you do principal least privilege with IAM. So you can actually project IAM policies across those lines to your downstream. And so now what's happening in your Terraform modules or your Plumi modules is you have a lot less inputs for your developers to worry about. And that interface, when you click on the boxes in MassDriver and you click configure, you can actually completely customize that interface. And so what we have a lot of times is engineers will come in, they'll design some Terraform, they'll make a much simpler interface where it's like, this is the only three things that my team needs to be concerned with when deploying Postgres. They can set a version, maybe they can restore it from a snapshot, and they can set what they want their availability to be. And all the alarms, metrics, everything else is codified in that Terraform and not exposed to them. Right? So you get these really, really simple interfaces by default that you can essentially add to. We also have this concept of presets. So you can, as an operations engineer, you can build out three different variable sets for a Terraform module. This is how we run it in dev. This is how we run it in production. And maybe we have like a production serverless version of Aurora that you can run as well. And so your operations team can actually give you a lot of presets. So now as the engineer, you're just saying, okay, I need Aurora. It requires a VPC. It automatically connects to the nearest VPC. And I have a very limited view of what I can control. And the rest of it is guardrails that are in place around me to make sure the security and compliance is in place. The other kind of aspect that we have is 
we have this concept of what we call remote references. And so it allows you to A, use MassDriver with stuff that's not in MassDriver. You can kind of reference it. But B, you can use this same concept to essentially make tiered projects. So we'll actually have customers that have like a shared infrastructure tier where their networks and their compute clusters are. And then they have projects called you know, ML team, API team, e-commerce team, whatever. And they just borrow essentially compute and networking from the shared infrastructure. And so you get these very thin layers, like views of your world. So you can see what the API team needs. And you can just see that you're getting your network or your compute from the shared infrastructure. So we do a lot to make sure that when you're looking at your diagram, it is very much your world, not the entire business, right? Because like, that's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about changes. You're thinking about what's happening in my system. You're trying to troubleshoot my application environment. I don't necessarily need to see networks and what the machine learning team is doing. It's just my world. So that works well for the developers that are creating the diagrams. And I love that. What about the operations teams that have to validate or that verify that what is coming out is correct and doing all those sorts of things? Certainly, there's a lot more detailed data that they need to make sure that the systems are correct. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So today, you, they have the ability to kind of view everything that's in the system. We keep an audit trail of every single change that's happened. So you can actually take different, let's say you're staging in prod. You can actually visually diff those. Or you can take your production uh, database and like diff it over like the last three hours and see what changes have been introduced. So we have a lot of functionality for operations teams to be able to come in and see what's happening, including just a full audit log where you can see literally every single change that's happened to anything. So you have this like centralized worldview of like what's going on. We're working on some dashboard stuff now to even provide more insights to your operations team. So we do like naming and tagging conventions behind the scenes for you. So we're starting to bubble up costs. Like how much do my data planes cost? How much does my production cost across the board? How much does the API team's production system cost? And so we manage all these tags on everything, whether it's going through Pulumi, Helm, Terraform, et cetera, give you this consistent tagging convention so you can actually pull back and query things with some pretty complex dimensions. And so we're going to start presenting that on the operations dashboard, which is something we're working on moving up towards reInvent. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of different tagging systems that do a lot of that sort of work. And one of the problems that all of those systems have to resolve is the idea that everything has to be tagged for anything to be useful tagged. So how do you, do you enforce tagging when people require tagging? And do you have policies and things like that for, for how tags are applied? And I guess I'm trying to lead us into maybe the policy side of the, of the diagramming process that's going on here. Yeah. So any modules that we build are automatically tagged. If you are, we have kind of like a series of, I don't know if plugins is the right word, but essentially like integration points for your uh, IAC. And so when your IAC executes, if you're not using one of our modules, Terraform modules, et cetera, there is a essentially like a bag of metadata that you get about your current compute environment. Alarm webhooks, where it could be PagerDuty or it could be MassDriver's alarm system. And one of those things is your tags. And so we automate a lot of the tags for organizations, projects, environments, application, purpose, et cetera, are automatically on there. So you can just kind of attach it to your Terraform or your Plumi. We are also adding the ability to do essentially cascading tags. So you can set organization, project target, and essentially resource level tags that will also kind of roll out in that metadata bag. So what's nice is in Terraform, 
if you're in AWS, you can just kind of set your default tags and take this bag of metadata that's coming out and that's got all of your tags in it. For some of the other clouds that don't have that nice setting the tags for all of your resources, you kind of have to set the tags everywhere. So I think we've got some PRs that we're going to be submitting back to one or two libraries that run Terraform code that allows you to do tagging for Azure and GCP as well at the provider level. That's one of those things that really sucks. Like if you're if you're in the AWS ecosystem, like that default tags block in Terraform is is amazing to get tags everywhere, but that doesn't exist in Azure, GCP, and some of the other systems. So if we got that in place, like that that just makes it so much easier to make sure that people are doing this consistent tagging. But today we effectively we provide the metadata in this block, and it's up to your team to kind of attach it to the right place. One of the things you mentioned, and and it certainly seems to make sense, is in your diagrams, things like the connections between your blocks, they're not just diagrams. They are contextual information that creates a valid block of information that's passed to both the source and the destination. And I think that's one of the ways that you implement the principle of least privilege in your IAM policies that you automatically create for customers. Is that right? Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So essentially we have in our contract system, we've got this defined way. So if you're familiar with Terraform, it'd be an output. And so effectively, we have these contracts that you can apply to your Terraform outputs that can validate that those are correct and that that is a type that will fit into MassDriver's type system. So I can say, this is what my VPCs look like. And we include like, I think like 200 types by default, but you can also customize, like you can build your own custom types and publish it into our registry, just like you can publish modules. So you can kind of define your own concepts there as well. And so in that, we have effectively an IAM block where you can essentially pass down named policies. So you can say, okay, I'm making an SQSQ. It's very use case specific. Maybe I only want to express the ability to write to this queue. Well, that's the only choice the downstream now has. So when you receive this block, there is an SQS policy in the IAM section called read. And that's the only policy you can pick from. Now, if you're working on, let's say another SQSQ and there's read and write, you can put both of those as uh, policies that are expressed in this contract that comes out. And so now the downstream will have the ability to pick read or write depending on what it needs to do. And so it's, again, it's kind of this framework for helping people do Terraform at scale and like write Terraform effectively, like not just, you know, send out ARNs and let people attach whatever they want. Like me as the person authoring this Terraform, I can tell you, these are the two important policies that you should know and use. And I'm not going to express an administrative policy to you. So you can't, you can't possibly bind to that one. I'm just going to give you a read and a write. You can pick one, the other, or both to bind to. So where do these policies or contracts, I'm, I'm not sure if those are the same things in your terminology, but both questions are they're different. Where do they attach themselves to? Are, is it something that they do, that you create and derive from the diagram or is there a lot more contextual information you need to know about an object besides the diagram in order to create those contracts? You produce it from your IAC tool. So we effectively give you the means to like integrate it into MassDriver and say like, this is an output. Let's say we're just talking Terraform specific because it gets a little weird with Helm. But with Terraform, you can say like, this output right here, yeah, we're going to call it FooCorp's VPC. And this is what we define like all of the outputs that have VPC information look like. And so you can define that. And then right from that Terraform module, you essentially just make that output. And now that bag of information can be transmuted into a Pulumi resource or a Helm resource or another Terraform resource. That's kind of the other interesting thing about our contract system is it allows you to do effectively remote state across 
provisioning tools, right? Which can be useful. Uh, there's a lot of times where I've got Terraform and Helm possibly in the same run for configuring an application, right? My application is going to run in Kubernetes and I need to run a Helm chart, but I also need to do some IAM to get my role, bind it to all my inbound policies, et cetera. So yeah, it's again, it's one of these things where it's like it's this integration point that we expose to people. And then just using Terraform, you can say, okay, this is, this is the output that I want to have be a very specific type. And now MassDriver has the ability to see that output and pass it off to other things. So is it fair to say that it's in a typical organization, it would be the operations team that would make those associations and make those modules that end up ultimately then becoming diagram concepts that the developer can use when they create the specific application level infrastructure? Is that a fair combination of the use cases? That's what we typically see is operations engineers doing that, but it's kind of up to the maturity of your team, right? So like the types are something that is extendable and you can publish them in the mass driver. So you could technically say, okay, the ML team, like they've got all these ideas of how they need to connect all their ML apps together, right? And they want to define some of their own types. So you could say, okay, the ML team can make a couple of types that they manage and that makes it really easy for them to maybe pass host names between different ML services or maybe some information about like the model building process and like an ETL system or something. So you can kind of, as the operations person and master ever have a bit of control over like who is allowed to publish modules and who is allowed to publish types into our type system. Cool. So if you were to try and describe, yeah, I'm going to ask this question about both your company and the industry. <laughs> There's two basic types of problems in the creating cloud infrastructure space that I see. There's problems of how do you make the job simpler and understandable? Mm -hmm. And then there's the problem of how do you make it conformant and compliant to the rules and regulations that I need in place, which include security policies, cost policies, all that sort of stuff. Those are in many ways conflicting, but they're very different sets of requirements in those two areas. Now, I think your product is more right now anyway, geared towards the simplify the job part of that solution. But you have a little bit of connection into the conformant and compliant infrastructure space. How important do you think that is in the future? And where do you think the industry's needs really lie in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think being able to reproduce environments is is pretty important, right? I mean, I think we've all been on that team where you're sharing a staging environment, right? And it's just like, okay, can I have the staging environment for an hour? And it's just like, oh, no, I need the staging environment, right? Like that world sucked, right? And so we're starting to see this idea of preview environments, which is pretty cool. Like I can, you know, on Vercel, I can spin up 20 preview environments. Every time I open up a pull request, I'm able to see 20 different versions of my application, but our applications are becoming more and more cloud services. Like MassDriver itself, I went through and just, so MassDriver itself has 27 AWS services that we use just to orchestrate like our core service, right? And it's part of the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. Like, I mean, it's a, lot of, yeah. right? it's a lot of code that we didn't have to write, but it's a lot of dependencies that we've taken on, right? And so when you think about that, like we're getting more and more cloud services as a part of our applications, things start to get interesting. Okay, so how are we validating these environments? How are we doing testing, right? Like, am I doing mocks for every single AWS service? Am I standing up local stack in my CI next to my service, right? And so one of the interesting things you can do with MassDriver is you can spin up preview environments that include infrastructure. 
And so if you have this shared environment, I can have a production environment and then I can have a shared production environment where my clusters are, our production workloads. And I can have a shared preview environment where our preview environment clusters are. And I can share that out to every single one of my development customers, you know, API team, LML team, et cetera. And now as they're spinning up the different cloud services that they need, let's say I'm doing a pull request for my app when it spins that pull request up, it makes a preview environment in MassDriver and it spins up infrastructure alongside it, right? So now my QA team, who is wanted to go in and see that this feature works, actually gets a fresh SQS queue and it stands up a database right alongside it. When that PR merges, it tears down the infrastructure, right? So you can actually start to bring in some of these cloud services alongside your preview environments to get real interactivity to see like how this stuff actually works. And then you can do things like, using K6 to exercise your application and see that it's actually working and scaling, how it's impacting some of these cloud services so you can get an idea of how it should be configured for production. Instead of, okay, you know, with my local mock for SQS, this app worked super fast. It's like, okay, well, does it when it actually hits SQS? Like, you don't know until you hit prod. And so I think that preview environments are and standardized, like repeatable environments are getting popular. You're seeing it get popular along like front-end frameworks. Some of the passes are starting to do it for like replicating your applications, but we don't really see something that's doing it for infrastructure. And so I think that's going to be really important as we start to lean into more and more cloud services, especially around a lot of the ML services that are starting to come out in GCP and AWS. So that was the first question. What was the second one? <laughs> Sorry, I should have wrote those down. Well, the first is it relates to your application and the second is it relates to the industry. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important in the industry. I mean, I think that as we get more and more cloud services, and some of these are, you know, they're cheap, it's fast, and it's easy to spin up an SQS queue, right? So like to be able to have a preview environment, where your application's running, where you have like a real queue, and you can actually see like, oh, I didn't have it set up for FIFO. I didn't realize that my mock locally did, right? Like, you can start to see some of these things that you might not catch until it hits prod, right? So I think it's very important for the industry to get there. I think what we're seeing at the same time, though, that's pretty interesting is like, it seems like we're in a place where people are starting to recoil from the complexity of the cloud. We're starting to see like 5% repatriation a year, like moving back to data centers. So that is very interesting as well. I think there's going to be some of those similar challenges there, right? Like we can do things easier in a data center because there's less things, but now we're writing more software, right? We're not leaning on these cloud services. Now, how do you spin up those preview environments? I think that even when you get back into data centers, being able to spin up these kind of reproducible environments for your developers is also still important, whether you're doing it in Kubernetes namespaces or using something like Nomad, like that is a thing that makes it so much easier to QA and launch stuff than the way that we did it previously with like staging environments, right? I think the alternative is starting to use things like feature flags, which are great. We actually lean into feature flags pretty heavily, but I feel like that requires a pretty high level of maturity and is not as easy to coordinate at scale than preview environments. Now, the trade-off there is preview environments cost money, right? So there's the rub, right? A lot of it depends on, you know, how much infrastructure does it take for an instance of your application to run? And, you know, at a small scale, a lot of applications can run with very, very small footprint, but not all applications. Yeah. Some applications require a certain size footprint for an instance even with almost zero traffic. And so in those cases, preview environments can be very, very costly. Yeah. What we actually do is to kind of allow you to like bin pack your costs a little, if that's a phrase I can coin, is we recommend people like have a compute environment that all their preview environments run in, right? Or maybe they have one or two of them depending on the size of their team, right? And so like you have this one Kubernetes cluster and one VPC, and then all of your preview environments actually get 
you know, essentially connected to that and provision. So you have independent compute environments for all of your applications, but they're sharing the same kind of compute resource. So you're not structuring a thousand Kubernetes clusters or 10 different VPCs to kind of test out a team's changes. And if you're not doing performance testing, you, you can even share database instances and things like that as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. 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 So I'm going to mention, I've got a list here of a few different products and technologies. Okay. Oh. And, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on how each of them fits into your space. And specifically, are they supportive to what you're trying to do? Are they competitive to what you're doing? Are they just unrelated and nothing that you deal with? And yeah. Those three answers, there might be more answers, but certainly I'd like to understand why you think that's, that's the case for each of them. Sure. First of all, we've talked a lot about Terraform. Yeah. What about CloudFormation? CloudFormation is, I would say it's not a competitor. That's something that we are actually in process of adding to MassDriver as one of our IEC tools. So we see a lot of customers come to us today with CloudFormation. They're like, we're tired of this, but they want to import their stuff. And so today we have the ability to import Helm and we have the ability to import Terraform, but not CloudFormation. So that's something we're actively working on. Do you see CloudFormation on the same level of sophistication as like Helm and Terraform, or do you see it as a either a substantially simpler or a substantially more complex version? I'm going to say something that might be offensive to a lot of people, and I can segue this into a couple of other tools. I could just run this train through a bunch of stuff, but CloudFormation and Google Cloud Config and Azure Bicep is the most phenomenal waste of human time ever. As an industry, like I get that each of the clouds like want to have their own like ah, grip on the thing, and there's some cool stuff like the ability to share cloud formation templates and execute them. Like that's cool. But like they're all also investing in Terraform modules. They all have teams that are managing their providers and managing official modules. And it's like, why are you spending so much time doing two things? Like I know they Just don't do want to Terraform. I know they don't want to be beholden to like a separate company that also very much wants to be them to be beholden to them. But it's just like every time like it's presented to me, somebody's like, should I do CloudFormation or should I do Terraform? It's like, well, at some point in time, you're going to maybe want to reach for a service in a different cloud. And do you want to learn a different tool? Like that's the reality. And like, that's the nice thing about something like Terraform or Pulumi. It gives you the ability to start reaching for, this is going to make people freak out, but reaching for hybrid sooner and like, oh my God, the guy said hybrid cloud startups. Like, but like, I don't think it's something we should be afraid of. Like we, as an industry, like we're always saying we use the right tool for the job until we get to the cloud. Then we use the tool that is in our cloud, right? We're like, why are you using AWS RDS? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's the one that's there, right? Like, why not, why aren't you using crunchy data, right? Like, we, I don't think we do that a lot in the cloud. And I think that hybrid cloud can be more than just like a buzzword. It could be you actually doing right by your business. Like AI platform in Google was pretty great for a while. Better than the ML and AI tools in AWS. Like why be stuck using the more mediocre tool? And when it comes to the IAC tool that you're picking, like the one that gives you the flexibility to not have to learn another tool to go get the thing that might serve your business better, like that's more important to me. And that's why I tend to pick Terraforms or things that are a bit more cloud agnostic. Next on the list are some CI/CD tools, things like Circle CI, Travis CI, Argo CD. Where do those sorts of tools fit into your ecosystem? Yeah, so we integrate with those. So we have an actually pretty novel way of how we do most things. But what I want to do first, if I can do product placement, Travis CI, I have it in my closet still. I got a Travis CI shirt at GitHub Universe, I think like seven or eight years ago. It is by far my favorite piece of swag I've ever gotten. So if any of the Travis CI people are listening, 
your swag person fucking rules. The break in the build shirt, love it, so comfy. But yeah, we integrate with CI/CD tools. We have a CLI that does all of our essentially the kickoff and provisioning in MassDriver, and so you can put it in your GitHub Actions. We have official GitHub Actions, but you can put it in Circle CI, GitLab, etc. So yeah, that's a place that we integrate. But what's interesting with like how we do everything, and this kind of just comes back to like security. But what's interesting, like I feel like where we are today. If you were in 2005 and somebody was like, "Hey, give me." I'm another company. Give me your source code. You want to use my product? Give me your source code. You'd be like, you're out of your freaking mind. But like everything we do nowadays, we're like, ah, sign in with GitHub and give it access to all my source code, right? Like we give access to companies, like give our source code to other companies all the time when we're authorizing for stuff, which seems a bit wild. And so one of the things we do at MassDriver that is extremely painful for us is we never get access to your source code. Even though we're helping you build images and scheduling those images or provisioning infrastructure, we never actually get access to your source code. We don't directly integrate with GitHub, where we ask for access to your source code, we do everything through CI. So CI is a very important partner and ecosystem for us to integrate with. What about cloud platform systems? Like I'm thinking things like Amazon's Elastic Beanstalk here. Where do you see platform as a service offerings like that compared to what you do? I think that they're for a lot of people, they're still a really great option. I mean, technically, like we support anything that Helm. Terraform and Pulumi support. So technically you can manage your Heroku environments with MassDriver. It gets pretty like inception-y inside MassDriver sometimes. It also runs on itself, which is very weird. But yeah, those probably fit more in the competition range with like a segment of our customer base. So we do get a lot of startups today that just, they just want to run their application, but they do want some control, right? So they're kind of competitors, but they're also sometimes things we'll just tell people that they should still stick to. Like we've had a couple of customers that come to us, so like we don't change a lot. Like Heroku feels really expensive. We're thinking about going to the cloud. Like how can MassDriver help us? And it's like, just stay on Heroku. Like if your Heroku bill is $60,000 a year, that's fine. Don't move to us. The cloud bill is going to be, maybe it'll be cheaper, but then like there's going to be a burden on you. Like just stay there. If you your business scales, come on back. So I think it really depends on the maturity of the business. Now, those people that do want a little bit more control, they do need queues or they do need to do some ML stuff. Like that's where it starts to be more of a customer that's interesting to us because we don't want them to have to deal with some sort of split operations management. You have to manage your applications in Heroku. You have to manage your infrastructure in AWS. Like you can't securely connect them because you need Heroku Enterprise to get like VPC peering, right? And so those are the customers that are more interesting to us. Like we can help you save some money on your compute and actually get you some of the functionality you can use from the cloud. So I think it really just depends on the customer's maturity and like what they're doing. Two more companies. The penultimate one is AutoCloud. Yeah, they're our buddies. We love those guys. So we actually work very well together. So, I mean, one of the things that we don't do is, you know, generate Terraform for you. Like we have Terraform that's in our marketplace, but if you don't have Terraform, like you can either pick from our marketplace or you can write your own. And so there are plenty of teams. Like I said earlier, there's the state of CD reports that 27% of orgs are actually using ISC today, right? There's a lot of companies that still aren't, right? There's plenty of people that are in data centers today. They haven't done a ton of Terraform. They're fantastic ops engineers that have worked in data centers forever. And now they're getting forced into the cloud, right? Like they still understand the concepts. They understand networks. They understand IP tables. They understand maybe even running Kubernetes, but they might not have Terraform experience or AWS experience, right? They need to be able to 
provision and manage stuff quickly. They need to be able to migrate themselves to the cloud without having to become a junior Terraform engineer at first, right? So I actually think AutoCloud and MassDriver actually work very good together. You can go in your AWS, you can kind of click around, build some stuff, generate Terraform with AutoCloud, and then you can push it into MassDriver for your developers to kind of pick and choose what they want. So cooperative, very cooperative yeah. from that standpoint. Yeah, you're solving different layers of the, of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Datadog. Datadog's an interesting one. Hmm. Is anybody from Datadog listening to this? <laughs> I'm sure they are. <laughs> Given I came from the observability <laughs> space with New Relic, I'm sure there's Datadog people listening. And Datadog's an interesting one, but I think my opinion of Datadog and the business opinion of Datadog might be a little different. Like I personally, as an ops engineer, do not find a lot of value in a dashboard. It's something that's really great to put up on a screen to make everybody think that you're fucking smart. Like looking at a dashboard, like building a dashboard is tedious, torturous work to me. It's like, okay, let's build a dashboard for what I think is going to help me at 2 a.m. when something's broken. Like I want open telemetry. Like I want traces. Like I want something with a bit more fidelity than just a bunch of blinking lights coming at me. So that being so said- Insert any observability company into that sentence. And instead of Datadog, if you want to choose- yeah. You know, New Relic or anyone else, you know, who, yeah. where do you sit in the observability space? And I know you've got integrations. Yeah. How do you see the correlation? Yeah. So like we kind of just bump up against it. So we do a little bit in the observability space today. We've got some really interesting work underway today that I'm not going to dive into too much in case there's that Datadog listener, but I think that we have like the way that we run and operate and like the number of places that we kind of interact with people's infrastructure, we have a lot more data points, I think, than some other companies. And our type system and the ability to actually see how things are connected together gives us a lot of insight. And so while we will probably never be your metrics dashboard, we are starting to bring in some more observability tools to help people lower mean time to resolution and get better understanding of how like their changes impact costs, how a change may be caused a metric to experience some anomaly. So, you know, I think that if you're looking for a bunch of blinking lights in a pretty dashboard, like that's not mass driver, we'd say, hey, yeah, go put the data dog thing in your mass driver account and your stuff will go out the data dog too. We're trying to give people a lot more actionable insights around a specific environment, right? So we're looking at things at the environment level. We're saying this is your API production account. You've got a database, you're borrowing Kubernetes. We actually know all of this stuff. You're sharing a Kubernetes cluster with four other teams, right? So there's a ton of context that we kind of get from our lines. And so we're working on some functionality there to make Meantime, the resolution of it quicker to resolve or smaller, and also to help people kind of find insights and problems before they occur is kind of the goal there. So I'd say, yeah, I don't know. It's that one's up in the air. That one's up in the air. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think we like kind of bump into each other like pretty closely. So as you grow, there's going to be more connections and associations. But it's funny that with all tools in the ops space, like depending on how you look at it, I feel like all of them, you're like, it, it depends on like how you feel that day as a founder. You're like, you know what? There are competitors today, but like, so much stuff, like we touch so many things, right? So it's like, you know, we touch CI, CD. We're technically doing your infrastructure provisioning. Like, does that make us an M0 or Spacelift competitor? I don't know. Like today, probably not because most of our customers are software engineers that maybe don't know how to write Terraform. So they're not going to go buy 
one of these other products is they don't even know how to write Terraform and manage cloud, right? Now, as we start to move towards more operations teams, like now we start to become a competitor with them. So that's the real interesting thing about this space. And even when we're doing our VC pitches, is like, who is your competitor? And it's like, anybody we want to be, but also we can be a partner with anybody we want to be. Like it's, it's, it's real, like it's an amoeba. There's real blurry lines. Absolutely. A great description of the DevOps space in general, yeah. but definitely... <laughs> Yeah. Definitely. I agree with that. So let's end with you know, a product maturity question. Where are you in your growth cycle? Are, are you in beta? Are you in production? Do you carry production workloads right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're managing whew, like four. Last time I checked, I think we're managing upwards of like 4,000 databases and clusters. So there's in production. Yeah. There's a ton of compute going through us right now. And we manage, you know, a number of healthcare companies, uh, a lot of startups in the AI space. So there's some pretty intense production workloads running there today. Now, I think... What's your largest workload by size, not name? (laughs) Oh, geez. I think the... Depends on how you measure largest, but like the most active customer right now is doing like 800 deploys like every two weeks or so. So like that is just a ton of deployments running through the system. Then we have some other like fairly large Kubernetes clusters. The catch is like we don't really have visibility into people's configs per se, like the way that we store things like we can't report on that. The end user can kind of use the keys that they have access to while they're interacting to decrypt and and compare some of their configurations. What we really see is like the end balance at the end of the month of how much compute they've bought and effectively like how many deploys they're acting on the system. So yeah, all those configurations. You really can't tell which are production loads and which ones are test loads and things like that. And you don't really have a lot of that visibility. Yeah. Like we can see the tagging. So like people tend to tag things the same, right? So like their production environments, like your environment actually is like a first class concept in mass driver. So people will name them prod production, you know, it's all very similar. So we just kind of fuzzily search that and like, okay, these look like prod workloads based on the naming convention that the customer's applying. Like that's how we kind of look at that. But yeah, as far as like the actual configuration, all of that is encrypted and stored and effectively an air gap to VPC that we maintain. I can air gap VPC. Some people are like, what in the fuck does that mean? It's it's very complicated <laughs> to explain, but it is the closest thing to an air gap VPC. Maybe we'll do a write-up on it. But yeah, we keep everything there because sometimes those configurations have secrets in them. So that was something that we didn't want to kind of be on the hook for. We didn't want to like present it in the UI and like our admin UI or anything like that. We just didn't want to have the configurations visible to anybody except for the people that own those configurations, kind of the goal. So yeah, so we mostly look at, at, at cost and deployments. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I very much appreciate your time. And yeah. my guest today has been Corey O'Daniel, who's the CEO of MassDriver. Corey, thank you so much for joining me in Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.